Well, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the Holy Scriptures. I thank you specifically for your Sermon on the Mount. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach, and I pray for each one of us that we would desire to become the kind of people that you are describing here. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, well, I want to begin by asking you um, just to reflect. This, it's kind of hard to find the true answer, but what is the most well-known verse of Scripture of the entire Bible? Now, I thought for a while it was John three sixteen, but I think that's for Christians, church people, because they've actually memorized that whole verse. But I think one of the verses I just read is probably better known throughout the world, Christians and others, and that is, turn the other cheek. That is probably the most famous phrase of Scripture, most well-known. I'll let you wrestle with whether or not that's true, but my point is that this is really, really well-known and sadly misunderstood. I'm going to look at only 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount today, and there's been much impact from these 10 verses, and not all of it's been good. Consider that some people have read those two paragraphs and decided that on moral grounds, they cannot swear in court. They cannot place their hand on a Bible and swear an oath. That they can't swear an oath of office. If they were to be elected into a position and have to swear, be sworn into their office or something like that, they wouldn't do it. On ethical grounds, they would say it's wrong to do that. Other people have read these passages and said they are absolute pacifists. There is no place for any kind of conflict or violence whatsoever, not even in the military, not even, not personally, not even war, that there should never be wars. Christians should never be involved in wars. People have taken these verses and come up with those extreme views. Now, what's interesting about this is if you read it just quickly, Jesus seems to be saying all oaths are bad, denouncing taking oaths or any vows. He also says turn the other cheek. But then if you know the earthly ministry of Jesus, you find that he personally does things that are slightly different than that. For instance, in Matthew 26, verse 63, I'm actually going to turn to it because it's so interesting. Um, Jesus is being examined by the high priest, and they are looking for a reason to accuse him so that they can crucify him. And keep in mind, he said these things about not taking oaths and turning the other cheek. And in this whole inquisition, Jesus is silent. They're asking him all sorts of questions, and he just remains silent. And in verse 63, it says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. And I tell you from now on, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. In other words, in this passage, he seems to recognize the significance of being put on, on oath in a trial like this. He seems to honor that. Or if you jump over uh, to a different passage um, where in John chapter 18, 21, again, this is part of him being arrested and, and uh, going through these difficult questions and false accusations. When he is questioned again in that passage by the high priest from John's gospel, it says, when Jesus spoke, he says, why do you ask me these things? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You know, he had been preaching for years now, three years, out in public, in the synagogues, in the temple even. So what he taught was well known. And he said, why are you asking these things? And when he had said this, 
one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Does Jesus turn the other cheek? And he says this, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In other words, he talks back. It seems like Jesus might have a deeper interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount than what we understand. And by the way, the Apostle Paul does likewise. He puts himself under a vow at one point, and he shaves his head, and he does personal spiritual disciplines for a period. And, that's, and then he also is struck for addressing the high priest. And he actually lashes back and says, you whitewashed wall. And then when he realizes it was the high priest, he apologizes because he says God's word says not to speak ill of your leaders. But the point here is, if you take a simplistic, literalistic meaning, yanked out of context and not understand the Sermon on the Mount, you come up with some very different ideas of how to live this. There are bad interpretive practices, and maybe some of you have fallen prey to that. One is a literal meaning, to only take it literally at face value and ignore the context. Now, in our context here, the Sermon on the Mount starts out with the Beatitudes. So Jesus' Jesus's disciples, Christians, come to him and then he explains to them the blessedness of being poor in spirit. And he goes through the Beatitudes, which we looked at several weeks ago. And then he lays out a picture of what the character of a kingdom person will look like. Note that he is not giving a new legal code. He's not bringing a new law down from the mountain like Moses brought the first law down. Rather, he's fulfilling the law and he's explaining the meaning of it. And he's showing what the character of a kingdom person will look like. It's not a new legal code for a couple of reasons. One, it's simply too short. It doesn't address nearly enough of life's situations to possibly be a law code. And furthermore, it can be literally interpreted, but done totally in the wrong spirit. You strike me on the cheek and insult me, I turn the other one, you strike my other cheek, and then I break your nose. I could literally live into the words here, but completely miss the spirit of it, right? This is not a law code. It is illustrating, it illustrates, not legislates, the kingdom character that God wants to build in his followers and what they will look like. Illustrates and not exhaustively. It's giving examples. It's showing pictures of what it would look like to be a kingdom person. These are the type of eternal people, the blessed ones, as the Beatitudes call us. Blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth. Today, we're specifically going to look at him explaining the peacemakers, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons and daughters of God. In other words, people will see how you live, if this describes you, and you will actually look like God. And they will say, see, you are sons and daughters of God, which is what Jesus said would happen. He calls us salt and light, that we're a city on a hill, that people will see our good deeds and give glory to God because of that. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons and daughters of God. This character will change the world. It will actually subvert and change and transform society. The more people that live like this, it will, it will change an entire culture. That's what salt does. It preserves and it seasons. And light, of course, illumines your way. You can, you can be seen. You can see where you're walking. So this is really important. And today, specifically, we're going to look at oaths, taking oaths, and retaliation. How to respond when somebody hurts you in some way. And both are re they're related to your reputation. 
your reputation will be picked up in both of these. And the question I began with this morning was, do you care more about your personal rights or building a purposeful reputation? And by that, I mean the purpose of being like God to transform the world and to lead others to him. I'm going to suggest that in many instances, they're mutually exclusive. You either hang on to your personal rights or you lay them down and build a purposeful reputation. If you hang on to your personal rights and retaliate and swear all kinds of oaths to appear honest and you do all of these things, you'll just look like the rest of the world. They won't call you salt and light. They won't say, clearly these are sons and daughters of God. You'll just be like everybody else. So Jesus is putting before us an invitation to build a reputation on God's character. Now I'm going to start with the oaths one first because it comes chronologically first and frankly it's easier to explain. So verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is Jesus pulling together a couple of parts of the old covenant law. One, you know the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, so he's picking up that idea from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. And there's also a passage, uh, Numbers 30, verse 2, where it says, if a man uh, vows an oath to the Lord, let him fulfill it. So it doesn't say don't take oaths. It just says, if you take an oath to the Lord, make sure you honor it. And so Jesus is picking up that teaching, but what's happened here, as with the other stuff we looked at, just like we looked at divorce last week, they wanted to uphold the letter of the law, but not the heart of it. They wanted to not commit adultery, technically, but be able to do it through lust and divorce. And this week, we want to appear like men and women of our word. We want to appear honest and sincere by taking oaths, but actually provide loopholes so that we don't have to follow up on what we say. That was common practice then, and frankly, it's common practice today. We see it all over the place, where people want to appear honest and truthful. But Jesus, a little later in verse uh, Matthew 23, 16, decries some woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. 23, 16, he's going through a list of things that they do, and he says, Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. How ridiculous is that? And Jesus says, what makes the gold significant? It's the temple. So your logic is flawed. You're trying to find loopholes so you can sound like you're really convicted and convincing in your words and then not have to follow through. We see this all over the place. I mean, it it happens uh, quite frequently, maybe even by habit in your own language. Have you ever said that? I swear, I'm telling you the truth. I've just put myself under oath. Why do I have to do that? I have to do that because other times I say things that I don't mean. Other times I say things that I don't follow through on it. So I have to say, no, I swear I really mean what I'm saying this time. Right? I have to add some kind of leverage to it because I'm not generally a truthful person. I mean, we're in a political moment right now. How about the dodge and pivot? the candidate gets asked a direct question and he ducks the question and shifts over to the talking point he wants to answer. He answers the questions he wanted to have asked instead of what was actually asked. We see this all over the place. We want to avoid a direct yes and no answer. 
So take a, a less intense thing than politics and just go to the, the uh, cookie jar. You know, we, we see people do this, adults and children. Did you take the last chocolate chip cookie? I was having a glass of milk. That's not what I asked you. Did you take the last chocolate chip cookie? Well, there are some other kinds in there. Again, I asked yes or no, right? We don't want to just say yes or no. We want to shade and color our language and add a, a gray area so that we can kind of get away with certain things. We want to hang on to uh, looseness of language. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, there are times for important vows. I think it's right to swear someone into office because of the, the importance of the office or to make a wedding vow. Clearly, God is not saying, don't take wedding vows anymore, or ordination vows, or these weighty things. But he's saying, practice honesty of speech. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, period. You don't have to get into this other stuff. Be an honest person. And consider for a minute that Jesus' own words were so often misunderstood. His character was maligned constantly, and he didn't feel the need to correct. He just knew that he was right and true with his father, and that was enough for him. Eventually, his reputation rose up to be truly what he, who he is, and what he said is what happened. So he's saying, be like that. Now, that's the O's. Let's get into more of the personal rights, because it is a very American thing to have my personal rights. I mean, we have a bill of rights, and we know them, and they're important to us, and we insist on our personal rights. So Jesus, in this paragraph, handles that. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. All right, this is a hard teaching, because the Old Testament has a number of places where the law specifically said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and a number of other things like that. Um, I can give you some of those, those. It's called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Uh, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, a number of places in God's law where that's specifically the case. But here's what happened. People take what is the civil law of the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, and they move it down to personal level, and they use it as a way to actually get revenge to actually retaliate for some harm. And what Jesus is teaching here is that we're not to do that. In fact, he's showing that they've abused the law as it is. It was for the civil law courts, not for personal justice. And it was meant to, to limit retaliation and limit punishment. The punishment needs to match the crime. Because we know this. If you punch me in the face and knock my tooth out, I'm going to gouge your eye out, and then your brother's going to come and murder me, right? It's an arms race. That's the typical heart condition of the world. And what this law did is it leveled that. It said, make sure that the, that the punishment fits the crime. And it was for the law courts, not for the individuals. And so what Jesus does next is not give us four specific new laws we have to literally fulfill. He gives us illustrations of scenarios where we could live into the new character. And he gives four of them here. But he's saying, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, that can be confusing too. Who is the evil one? Satan. But the scriptures in James and elsewhere say, resist Satan and he'll flee from you. So he's not saying, don't resist Satan. Nor is he saying, don't resist evil in the system. I mean, we're in a moment right now where the evil of racism has been brought to our 
to our attention again. We need to resist that. It's evil. It's bad. He's not saying don't resist evil in the system. He's saying don't resist the individual person who is under the prince of this world, whose ways are evil in alignment with the culture. Don't resist that individual. Definitely resist Satan. Definitely resist systems of injustice. But he gives four illustrations here. The first is turning the other cheek. Now recognize that it's actually an insult to be smacked in the cheek, to be slapped. It's not so much for the pain as it is to insult someone and belittle them. And what he's saying is here, stay vulnerable. Don't become a person who recoils and gets ready to never let someone offend you again. Never let someone hurt your reputation. Immediately you go to a lawyer and you sue for libel or slander or whatever. You get ready to protect yourself. He's saying don't do that. Remain vulnerable because you know that God will avenge you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You don't have to be the one. He's looking out for you. Ultimately, he will avenge you. And then if somebody sues you for your tunic, the inner garment, give him your cloak as well. The cloak was the outer garment. And in those days, when they didn't have nearly as much stuff as we do today here, that was not just your cloak for the day. It was your bedding for the night. In fact, one of the laws was that if someone gives you their cloak as a pledge for something they borrowed, make sure you give their cloak back before nightfall. Otherwise, they're going to shiver and freeze all night because that's their bedding as well as their, their cloak is way more important. And so he's saying, be willing to give more even at personal expense to your own hurt. Help, look for a way to help the person who is actually suing you for stuff. Change the equation because you recognize that God will repay you. You're storing up treasures in heaven with your behavior. God will give you all things in Christ. So don't hang on to your possessions in such a way that you're going to get into a fight over whose is what. Be willing to not only let them take it, but look for ways to help them as they do it. This is a hard teaching, I recognize. Then he says, if someone forces you to go a mile, go the second mile with him. Now, in those days, Rome had occupied the nation of Israel. So they, had, they were under the political rule of Rome. And one of the laws was that a Roman officer could immediately conscript a citizen of Israel into forced labor. But there was a limit. They could go, I think it was a thousand paces. So he could say, well, like Simon of Cyrene in Jesus's trial, Simon was forced to carry Jesus's cross up to Calvary. That's an example of this. And so he's saying, when somebody forces you to, to serve them, don't just do the bare minimum. Do extra. Help them. If the officer's asking you to carry it a thousand paces, but he's got to get it 2,000, if you can do it, keep going and take it all the way there. And what you'll effectively be doing is you'll be saying, God is my Lord. I'm carrying this package for God both miles. You're making me carry it the first mile. I'm actually serving him and you. And people will say, who are you? What kind of person are you? Who, what God do you serve? See, they'll see your good deeds and they will give glory to your God. This is about having a God reputation and sacrificing personal rights to win it. And the fourth example he gives is if someone begs of you or asks to borrow something, don't avoid them. Don't hide, them, hide from them. Don't go out the back door so you don't have to see the guy coming that is going to ask you for help. Look for ways to help. And recognize that God says, you are my hands and my feet. He's going to use you to provide for people's needs. 
And again, he'll repay you. Now, I want to point something out here. This is personal. This is not communal. It's individual personal rights. I have the right to turn my other cheek to someone. I don't have the right to turn Luke's cheek to someone else. So John Stott, the the Anglican pastor, says on this, if I should happen to capture someone robbing my house, I should serve him a sandwich if he's hungry while I'm calling the police. Right? Because I don't want to just let him rob all of my neighbors. I don't want to cause all of them harm. In our house, we often talk about a book our kids read called The Poisonwood Bible, which is a sad story of a pastor who is an awful uh, literalist about the scriptures, the worst kind of fundamentalist. And he does all these things in the name of God that inflict great pain on his family. He's causing his family to sacrifice personal rights because he thinks he should. And we have to recognize here that there's a, a line between what is a personal right I'm giving up and how it affects the whole community. The state does have the sword for justice. People are called to serve in the police force, in the military, and whatever. And they're serving the state in that moment. I mean, you can read about Romans 13, about submitting to the authorities God has put in place. I'm talking today about personal rights, not corporate things. This requires for us an actual dialogue with God. Because there will be a ton of situations like these that will pop up in your life. And you've got to ask the Lord, does this make sense? You know, one example I read this week was, imagine you're a heart surgeon and you're going to do a transplant and someone forces you to serve them for taking something a mile. Well, you do what you're required by law to do, but you don't go the second mile in that situation and cause the patient to suffer. You politely put the package down and you get out of there as fast as possible because you've got to serve someone over here. There's no legalistic way to interpret this. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit. You've got to say, God, help me navigate this. What do I do in this moment? Do I hang on to a personal right, or do I let it go to build your reputation in the community? The only way we can live into the Sermon on the Mount is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is hard stuff, which is why we're calling the sermon series A Mountain Climber's Guide to the Sermon on the Mount, because it's hard. It requires us to actually walk with the Spirit of God in this world. And I want to encourage you to build a reputation on God. And think about this, Christ's own example His character was constantly maligned, his words were misunderstood, and he didn't defend them at all. He was pleased that his father was pleased with him. I know for me, I became not legalistic, but very convicted about my exact words. If I say to someone, I will pray for you, I either do it right there, or I put it in my phone so I'll remember later, or I fill out one of the prayer cards and put it in the box so Monday through Friday when we do morning prayer, I will pray for that person. Because I recognize I've just given my word. If I said, I will pray for you, I make sure I do it. And the reason I started doing that, it was years ago, is because I realized I'm not just saying it to you, I'm saying it to God. He hears everything that I say. And I want to be honest before him, like Christ was honest before his father. His words, his yes and no always meant yes or no. And I want to be like that because I'm living my life in light of God, in his presence. We're doing this together. That matters more to me than what somebody else might think. And consider also Jesus' personal rights. He's the eternal son of God through whom all things were created. And he sacrificed those out of love for us to come. He was born into a basically poor working class family. He, for the first, well, for his entire earthly ministry, it was thought that his mother was immoral. And that's why she had a child out of wedlock. So he was accused of being an illegitimate child. 
he had the ability to call down legions of angels to his rescue, and he chose not to. He laid down those rights. Look at Philippians 2. He was equal and is equal with God and yet did not grasp onto that, but he emptied it and took the form of a servant out of love for us so that we could be brought into his kingdom. Christ was willing to let go of his own personal rights. Christ was willing to be misunderstood and not worry about his reputation on his words. He was always true. I want to encourage you not to cling to things that are passing away, but take the long view. Let go of your personal rights when it will build your reputation as a God-centered person because you're a God-centered person. This is what this invitation is, and it can only happen when we walk in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to need to pray for his help. It's what all people will be like one day in the kingdom of heaven. Try to imagine that. No one insists on their personal rights. Everyone is always true, and God is at the very center of everything. That's where we're headed, and for right now, for the people of God, that's possible for you. So let's pray, and then we're going to join in singing a sermon response song. Lord, I thank you for these hard words, but good and true words. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now, that you would bring your presence and your power upon your people here in this building, among those watching on their TVs. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be citizens of your kingdom and not just people with rights in this world or this culture or this country. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would give them a hunger to be your blessed ones, to know the blessedness of being poor in spirit and the other Beatitudes, peacemakers who are sons and daughters of God. Draw them in, Lord, and fill all of us with your spirit. For I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.